Well, thanks so much to our team, and uh, thank you for joining us as well. My name is Dave Fields. I'm our lead pastor here, and um, in our home, we have one of those kind of crafty, wood, sort of, um, I don't know what you'd call that, sort of decoration in our, in our home. It's above our mantle, and it's just got three letters on it, J-O-Y, and it's in this beautiful script. It's really lovely. Um, but at Christmas, well, we've actually got a number of other crafty things that we put up as a part of our keeping advent of preparing our hearts for this season. Um, there's another one that says, joy to the worlds in sparkly wet letters. Uh, and yet another so- sign that just says joy. Again, on last count, there were actually five sort of crafty wood things up in our living room area. And that could seem a bit much, perhaps. Somehow, though, it's not. And not because we're just that full of joy. Actually, Catherine and I were sort of joking around as we looked at it. It was um, uh, maybe a bit more like this. Uh, it's, it's more like we, we need to see that word joy so many times to remind our own hearts. It's like joy. Ah, oh, joy, right, yes, okay, okay, joy. <laughs> now, uh, some of you um, know this Elvis song. <clears throat> I'll have a blue Christmas without you. And my sincere apologies for that. (laughs) Uh, Some of you know the song, but the reality is, for all the joy images that we see at this time of the year, and for all the joy that we hear is uh, meant to be part of the quote-unquote Christmas spirit, like whatever that means, in the experience of many people, you might resonate with the Elvis song. Many, many more people perhaps this year worldwide are experiencing, well, something where that word joy might sound a little bit more mocking than anything. We might think joy? Really? And today I want to say, well, as someone who is there, you might say personally, yeah, the the five signs in our living room might seem like a bit much, but somehow it's not. Seeing that word joy above our mantle on a year like this year, and not just with lockdowns, but, you know, for me, in the, in the midst of grieving the loss of my brother, who is very much a friend, it might seem a bit ironic, but maybe it's exactly right. So today, we're going to look at the promise of joy. We're going to see how that's linked to the source of all joy And then we'll see how we can experience that joy for ourselves. So I invite you to pray with me. Heavenly Father, we bow in your presence. May your word be our rule. Your spirit, our teacher, and your greater glory, our supreme concern. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So now I invite you. uh, Would you look together with me at this well-worn Christmas text, and, and maybe uh, we just trust that the Lord will adjust our eyes and ears to, f- to hear a fresh word from him again today. So look with me in your Bibles at Luke chapter 2, and now we read that uh, Joseph and Mary are on their way traveling to Bethlehem. It's under the orders of the world's great king at the moment, Caesar Augustus. And so arriving in Bethlehem, we read that there was no room or no guest room, pardon me, available for them. 
So the young couple, they likely end up in the section of a relative's home on the lower floor. That's where the animals would be brought into and be kept overnight. And often it's kind of carved out of the rocky ground below. And then we read this. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, don't be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He's the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find the baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. So just first notice the promise of joy. Again, verse 10, I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Now, I, I made this point a number of years ago, but um, it still makes me laugh, so I'll say it again. The phrase used here by the angels in, in the Greek text is uh, heron megalon, joy mega. Uh, mega joy sounds like a great name for a band. <laughs> um, but there's just think about this for a second. There is a size and quality to the joy being spoken of here that this baby's birth will bring. What is being announced is the source of a large, hefty sort of joy. Notice too, the angels declare that Jesus is already king. He is the Messiah the Lord, not just that he one day will be, he is. And remember, these are Jewish shepherds. So they are living with this expectation, a hope of one who is coming, the king who will set them free forever. So could it be, the shepherds are wondering, that God is fulfilling his promise tonight in our little town? But these Jewish shepherds were also painfully aware of another reality of that other king, the one in Rome. That whole census thing? Yeah, that. Mary and Joseph, they hadn't been dragged across the country for no reason after all. These shepherds were under Roman occupation. They were a conquered people. So how could this baby already be the king when Caesar is still on the throne and very much in power? How could a new kingdom be present even now that's what's going to get worked out throughout the rest of the story as luke tells it but for now these shepherds well they need to trust the words of the angel this baby king is already king even when everything else in their world might suggest otherwise and maybe it's worth us just pausing over this for a moment as well what the angels declare of jesus it was true then, and it's still true today. He is still king, even when, from our view, it doesn't always look like it, right? But yes, Jesus is reigning. Where? Well, primarily in and through his royal agents in the world. And we might be thinking, who is that? 
Folks, that's the church. That's those who've trusted in Jesus. That's you and me. The reign of God is present everywhere God reigns as king. It is expressed in and through the people of God. For when we trust Jesus as our loving leader, as Paul says that we are transferred from the kingdom or the dominion of darkness and brought into the kingdom of the son he loves. For those who've said yes to Jesus then, we are the kingdom people. We represent that kingdom and that king. So maybe we can see it like this. Our practice of keeping Advent is to continue in patient, pregnant hope. And it's to be working in that hope of Jesus' second coming as agents of his peace and justice and mercy, even in the waiting. Yes, with all of those still to be brought under his reign issues in our lives and our our world, his full and final reign is coming. And we wait and we hope for that, but we don't stop working because we are also agents of that in the present. The wonder is that he chooses to use us as a sign, a pointer to what's coming. We together as God's people are to be a foretaste of the world to come. It's like, um, I don't know if you ever did this. For those of you who got married, you might have sat down um, and the caterer who you were maybe going to have cater your wedding put some samples in front of you, some foretastes of what was coming for the wedding. And you ate those little samples and you thought, oh man, I want more of that. And that's why you hired the caterer. But in the same way, we as God's people are to be a sample, a foretaste of what is to come. And the question comes, what ought the world to taste? What is it to which we are pointing I would say that it means we need to be a community that is reflective of the same love that God loved the world with. One where he gave, as we just sang from John 3.16, that he gave his one and only son. The way that we reflect kingdom priority is in that radical generosity. We looked at that last week in our message. We are those to signal that there is hope, that there is forgiveness that there is transformation, and that it's possible even starting now when we trust in Jesus. So yes, Jesus is actually already king in the shepherd's day, and he is still king in and through us. Now the shepherds, they are queued up to go and see, to check it out for themselves. But before they get anywhere, they receive the show of a lifetime. Verse 13 Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. Indeed, glory to God. Advent is a season of worship. It's a season of turning our eyes and attention with those angels to the one who gets all the glory. But what about that peace? Maybe you've tripped over this before like I have. It almost sounds like it's for an exclusive group, like on whom his favor rests. So what about the rest of us? But no, this is actually an inclusive statement, a statement of invitation. God's favor 
rests on all those who will humble themselves to receive the newborn king. As we've already heard, this is good news for whom? For all the people. It's to be great joy for all the people. But we have to be honest too, not everyone will want it. But all are invited to embrace it. Better to embrace him. For the good news, we'll see again, is not a thing. It's not a set of ideas. It's not simply a function of something that happened once in the past. The good news is a person. The king who was born, savior of the world. Yes, and this is news. He is the news for all of us. Even you. Do you know it yet? Let's look at verse 15 now. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, well, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. But notice, the hosts of angels, they show up not at the temple, nor to Augustus back in Rome, but to these guys, a group of shepherds. Yes, in this move, God challenges and actually inverts a lot of the way that we see the world working. He overturns our values at almost every term. So the context of joy is this. The shepherds get the show. And we need to note the lowliness of shepherds in their world. They are not the highly respected ones. Uh, It's not the shepherds that you go to when you need advice uh, for life, or typically that wasn't the case in their day. I think Dietrich Bonhoeffer, pastor and theologian, writing in the uh, kind of through the 20s, 30s, and 40s, he said it this way, God is not ashamed of the lowliness of human beings. God marches right in. He chooses people as his instruments and performs his wonders where one would least expect them. God is near to lowliness. He loves the lost, the neglected, the unseemly, the excluded, the weak, and broken. What if that's true? Seems so different than what like we often or our world often sees as the context for joy. And perhaps we can test our own hearts in this, our own underlying beliefs. Just finish this statement in your head. Joy comes to those who fill in the blank. Or For me, joy would be on the other side of, what is it for you? My guess, my hunch is that for at least some of us, the answer rolls out like this. Joy comes to those who have, maybe comfort, maybe financial security. Like maybe you really can buy joy. And that's what's driving you to keep looking on Amazon all the time. Or for others, we might say, well, I I, I finally will have joy when I meet that certain him or her, then joy, then then it'll come. We might not want to say that out loud, but maybe there's an underlying assumption that you just need to name again that's actually forming the bedrock of your life, your pursuit of joy. But let's remember what the shepherds heard whom the promise is for. This joy will be for all the people. And well, remembering that the shepherds who hear it were the lowly, the rough and rejected. So when they hear all, they might think, even me? And the angel answers, indeed you, maybe especially you. 
The context of joy is a heart open to God. And then look how they respond. Verse 16, so they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning him, what had been told them about the child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, where? Well, to the fields, <laughs> glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen, which were just as they were told. So the cause of the joy, it's the good news. A Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. Now the shepherds, they surely don't know it yet, but the news, the good news that will bring great joy it really does cut through utter darkness. As there was the darkness over the night sky that had been split apart when the heavenly messenger shows up and the glory of the Lord shone around them, so too. This baby is born here to split apart the darkness of our world, the dark corners of our own souls, where we might have tried to tuck away our guilt or our shame far out of sight. Again, Bonhoeffer says it well on a sermon he preached in his Advent collection. He says, a love that left people alone in their guilt would not have real people as its object. So in vicarious responsibility for people and in his love for real human beings, Jesus becomes one burdened by guilt. Just look back at the feeding trough with me for a moment. This little child, what do we read? Is wrapped in cloths and laid, probably not in a sort of wooden box stuffed with hay as we often imagine it today. More likely a slab of rock carved into the foundation of the home. So here we have a child wrapped in cloth and then laid on a rock. Last week we saw in Matthew's gospel, his Christmas narrative, that it keeps pointing us ahead. We can't just stop in, 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 in the nativity scene, you might say. Neither does this text allow us the same. For look at Luke 23, 53. Fast forward with me. We read this of Joseph of Arimathea, who is a faithful follower waiting for God's uh, reign to come. We read of how he takes Jesus' body down from the cross. Then he took it down, wrapped it in linen cloth, and placed it in a tomb cut in the rock. Do you see the parallel there? That wasn't an accident on Luke's part. And in the next scene, we have angels. They show up again. This time, it's to another group of the lowly in their world a group of women. These followers of Jesus, well, they've come to Jesus' tomb expecting to find him wrapped in cloths and laid on a slab of rock. But the angel says, why do you look for the living among the dead? Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. The angels that announce the birth of the Savior. Well, they're present again, 
this time to announce that the one who his Savior, who, is, who they mentioned as Savior as a baby, has truly and utterly finished his saving work. The Lord is risen. So as the angel declares, Jesus really is the Savior who has been born to you, and that you as shepherds and all of us, how he saves us is actually his joy as well. So you see the source of our joy, the reason why the angels say this is great joy for all people is the chance for a new start, for forgiveness, for the reset button of our hearts to truly be pushed, to heal us of the sickness of sin that keeps us separate from God. Paul Tripp, he says it well, he says, happiness comes from a heart at rest. That rest comes from the deep relief of knowing God has given you what you could have never earned. It is grace. It is gift to you. A heart at rest. That's something we can never buy. But we need to see, too, that bringing this great joy that was Jesus' joy. For listen to Hebrews 12. Listen to this. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. What motivated Jesus to endure the cross, the most incredible suffering possible? The joy. The joy set before him, the joy of bringing you and I home to the Father forever. It's the joy of winning you. That's what he fixed his eyes on. We need to see that, that the ultimate trajectory of this story, what it will mean that good news is indeed proclaimed, is that this person has come the Savior who can bring rest to your heart and to mine forever. Do you know it yet? Is it something that you've experienced, that you've embraced for yourself? The invitation is here for you today to come home. Last, the expression of joy. The shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. So we see the shepherds receive the message with joy, and their response is to glorify and praise God for all that they've seen and heard, but more. They can't contain the news of this joy. They are compelled to share this good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Their response to this news is to spread it. So along with Anna in the next story of Luke's gospel, these shepherds, were the first evangelists. They are the first to announce that Jesus, or that in Jesus, God was truly doing the work he promised to. Funny thing, isn't it? How God loves to use those considered least in the world to bear the good news of hope. The shepherds, low on the social scale, Anna, a woman, a widow, these get to be the first announcers, the first preachers of the gospel of Jesus. Maybe the implication for us is obvious, but I'll say it out loud anyways. The way that the world is won is not primarily by slick performances uh, of well-polished evangelists, good as that may be. 
but by the legitimate joy of the everyday us's. Letting our experience of the joy bringer spill out into our relationships and the stories that we choose to tell. But this perhaps leads to the most pressing question, I imagine, that most of us still have today. Here's the question. Like, how do I tap into that joy? Singing from a Christian perspective, um, the band Drew Holcomb and the Neighbors, they raise the question in one of their songs and say, is it possible to be both happy and human? Good question, right? Really, they're asking, is real joy possible in the real world? And they go on, they go on to answer like this, certainly, but not without the pain. We, we might be prone to pit joy and pain against each other, but that would be to misunderstand the meaning of joy altogether. Listen, Jesus himself said this, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. That's John 15, 11. Jesus' own joy, full joy in us. I want that. I don't know about you, but I want to live in that. Jesus says it's possible. Jesus is also the one described in Isaiah 53 as a man of sorrows and one acquainted with grief. And his life, as you look at the Gospels, bear that out. So joy is not only possible, but normal for those who know Jesus, who follow him. In, said another way, we can and maybe even should be consistently and fundamentally joy-filled people. <laughs> so we have to see again, joy is not based on outward circumstances. If it was, then we would be constantly in and out of joy. It's different than that. I think we can go back to the shepherds and ask, what changed about their circumstances after meeting the child? The answer? Nothing. They returned to their sheep. They're still at the bottom of the social ladder. And this matters, Caesar Augustus is still on his throne. So what about their outward circumstances changed? Nothing. But they had met the king. And they believed the message they were told about him. And that was enough to completely reorient their hearts, to fill them with joy. What were they told? They said, a savior has come, a ruler is really here. He already reigns. That means one day peace will be restored. And knowing that, trusting that, changes everything. It meant that there is no hurt now that one day when Jesus arrives again cannot be fully healed, even transformed into something beautiful. It means that there is no disease that will have the last word over us. For there will come a day when God makes all things new. And it's living by that and into that story, that reality, that enables us to face anything with an abiding joy that the Lord presses deep into our hearts. See, joy is not a feeling that comes from happy circumstances. Joy is, as the psalmist says, the results of having roots that tap way down into the flow of God's never-ending grace. That when the season outside is hard, when the pressure is on, 
Well, like a tree that's planted on the banks of a river with its roots going way down, we can tap into and draw up the needed nourishment in every circumstance you face. Joy, it flows from the ability to perceive, to notice, to see God's big plan, and then to, to, to put ourselves into that story. This is what filled the shepherds with joy. And it can fill you with joy too. In particular, joy comes from learning to think, to perceive, to see the world within the frame of what God has done for us in Jesus. And then leaning into that history, knowing his loving plan will be worked out. I I like how Sarah um, Breeztek, she's a school principal and an educator, she puts it like this. She says, I've been thinking a lot about narration lately. As an English teacher, I know the importance of a narrator in a novel. His words give purpose to the character's life. Uh, Her words provide meaning to otherwise senseless events. On the other hand, an unreliable narrator tells the story from a skewed perspective. He sees the world from a compromised sense of truth, and that changes everything too. In my English classroom right now, I am enjoying A Tale of Two Cities with my students one more time. One of the book's main characters, uh, Sidney Carton, believes he is an utter failure. Although he's intelligent, handsome, and full of energy, he tells himself, I shall never be better than I am. I shall sink lower and be worse. Indeed, the more he repeats these words to himself, the more it seems his potential will be wasted, all because he is an unreliable narrator of his life. So then, uh, this educator, she goes on to speak of how, from a Christian perspective, God is our narrator. And she goes on to encourage us with these words, uh, maybe the words that we would speak over our children or others in our life. She says, "He, he formed them, our kids, our friends, He calls them, he gives them a new identity, and he authoritatively writes every page of their story for their good and his glory. He is an excellent narrator indeed. At the end of A Tale of Two Cities, Sidney Carton calls to mind words that he memorized long, long ago, but had nearly forgotten. I am the resurrection and the life, saith the Lord. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. As Carton allows these words, Jesus' words, to narrate his life, he is changed and God redeems his story forever. This is the power of a reliable narrator. As an educator reading Carton's story, I'm reminded that truth, memorized in brains and written in hearts, is one of the best gifts we can give our children. Because after all, the most frequent voice a person hears all day is his own. Wouldn't it be great if increasingly that voice was not our own weak voice, but that of God, the true and ultimate narrator of our lives? Who's narrating your story today? Which voice are you listening to? 
Because if you're listening to a narrator who's not telling you the truth, be it your own voice in your head, if you're not listening to what God has said to us, said both in the words of Scripture, but said most perfectly in His Son, Jesus, who dies for you, who rises again, who surely will come again, if He's not writing your story, narrating your story, someone else or something else is. And that will leave you outside of joy. There's this little rhyme, it goes like this. Two prisoners sat behind bars. One saw mud, the other stars. What's the difference? Same circumstances, different vision. The difference is in the person. Something has changed inside of them. That's what happens when we allow the source of our joy, Jesus, the saving king, to become the narrator of our story. So who's the voice most consistently speaking to you? Are you open to hearing a new voice, a reliable narrator? For joy is not limited by our our external experience. It comes from knowing God and walking with Him. Joy, you see, is always the byproduct of seeking something else. You can't seek joy directly and get it. You'll never get it that way. It's by seeking the one who says that his joy is bringing us home, bringing us near. So joy is the result of relationship. Starting with God and then relating well to our neighbor. Relating that is deep and close and rich. Think of it. In the midst of our sorrows, we often draw nearer and closer to God and to other people, our Christian brothers and sisters. James says it like this, consider it pure joy brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Pure joy? Like, what are you smoking, James? Well, trials, James says, produce in us perseverance, character. They make us more like Jesus. And what if God's plan for you is that? You see, joy is not the absence of pain, but the presence of relational closeness. Joy comes from, as we've seen, the ability to perceive God's bigger picture and then join in it. Joy comes from knowing that God is making us holy. Now, it's one of those unwritten rules, I suppose, but a rule, it seems, nonetheless, that when you're preaching, you should never talk about what you're doing as a preacher. Uh, I'm about to step over that for a moment in closing here. You see, I want to preach to hearts, not just to your minds although the minds are important too. I want to speak to the center, to the deepest longings and desires and decisions of each person who's listening today and any day, really. But to preach to people's hearts, I think you need to preach from the heart. Like the preacher needs to believe what they are saying. So though my goal is not just to uh, be grieving on stage, like I'm trying to process my own stuff as this were just kind of a giant counseling session. That's not it either. And I'm aware it could come off that way, I know. But here's the thing. I'm showing up and I'm supposed to be preaching about joy on this day of Advent. And I'm wrestling with grieving too, folks. Most of you will know that I lost my brother Jordy tragically last February. The last times I spent with him were right around this time. His birthday is November 22nd. I said, what do you want for your birthday, George? He said, I want you to come down to Teen Challenge, which is a Christian community of people who are 
wanting to follow Jesus but wrestling with addiction. He said, I want you to come down to Teen Challenge and to speak at chapel. I'd really love for you to do that. And I was like, wow, I would love to, George. So I got in my vehicle and drove down to Chilliwack and, and spent the night with him and, and that community. And it was a great joy for me to be there. Uh, and then George came, just, he only had one day off of work, Christmas Day. So he drove up Christmas Eve and then drove back Christmas night. He spent 24 hours with us last Christmas. That was the last time I got to spend with him in person while he was still alive. And so you can imagine that this time of the year for me is just this mix of like grieving right now. It's real. But I want to be able to look you in the eyes and say the joy is real too. Because God is bigger, his love is greater, his plans actually reach beyond this life even into the next. And so I want to tell you that, well, I'm, I'm not trying to tell you that the, the pain precludes the joy. I think it is both and. You can say, this is awful, this is horrible. What I'm going through right now is it stinks. And the joy is real, and it really is, because it's the joy of knowing God personally and having the family of God, the church, as those who pray for, support, and encourage, even through the middle of the mess. So am I just full of it by preaching about joy and living something else? I'm not living something else. That's what I want to tell you today. The biblical authors weren't either. When Paul says, rejoice, over and over again in Philippians, you have to remember he's He's under arrest. He's in jail. Singing after he and Silas had been severely beaten. It is possible to say the joy that comes from Jesus is real in all of this. And this is stinking painful all at the same time. Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, scorning at shame. Why? Because he was looking forward to what he would get from all of it. What does he get? He gets you and me. He gets creation restored. He gets it all. He knows that what is being accomplished is of infinite value. And his joy now becomes our joy. Restored relationship with God and God's people forever. Would you let God narrate who you are and as the only one with the objective picture of the whole story, would you trust that his future that he has in store for you is better than you could possibly dream of? To do that would be to put yourself in relation to what's really true right now. For as we know, joy comes from relational wholeness, from rich, deep relationship, and nothing and no one can take you from God and that relationship. Let's pray as the music team comes forward. Lord, some of those who are hearing this today are hurting. Their hearts are heavy, and for lots of reasons. You know each one of those reasons intimately, and you cared enough, you do care enough, to enter into the brokenness and pain of this world associate with our loneliness in order to repair forever our broken hearts. So our prayer today is simple, Jesus. Fill us with the joy, your joy, letting you tell the story of love to us again 
so that we might join into it. Lord, we ask that you would open our hearts, that we might let that good news that will be cause for great joy for all the people to be the news that reframes our vision today. And so we ask for this, knowing that you're good and love to answer our prayers in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.